Uh, my name is Micah, just so you guys know, I'm the lead pastor here at Northwood Long Beach. Uh, we're one church in four different locations. Uh, so we got like right here in Long Beach, uh, we've got one in Gulfport, we've got one in Wiggins, and then we've got one in Ocean Springs as well. And we are, we are enjoying being part of uh, the Gulf Coast, but also making a difference all throughout the world. And uh, some people are just walking in, everything's still cool. Uh, how many of you guys are like, for real, excited to be here this weekend? Yeah, me too. Me too. I really am. So, um, hey, if you're new here, uh, I want you to do one thing before service ends at some point. There is a card that's in the seat pocket right in front of you. If you're still in the lobby, uh, somebody's going to get one of these cards for you. And it's called a, called a Next Steps card. And at the end of the service, if you would at some point during the service fill that information out on the card and then go into the auditorium. If you're already here, just go to the back of the auditorium and you can uh, drop that card off at the Next Steps table. What we want to do is we want to get uh, connected with you. We want to help you grow, connect, know more about Northwood, but also answer any questions that you might have. Uh, we genuinely believe that when we connect, uh, we grow together and we can make a difference all throughout the world. Our mission as a church is that we help people. We create environments. Like this is an environment. Um, and we believe that environments help people uh, know God. We want people to come here and know God more than when they first came in. Like when they leave, that they would know God a little bit better. Uh, we would like people to be growing in Christ, which simply means this, becoming more like Jesus and less like ourselves. It's the process of sanctification and transformation. Oftentimes that's really uncomfortable. Uh, but we, we welcome in the discomfort uh, because we believe our lives were created to glorify God and to reflect Christ. So grow in Christ and then go in the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, our prayer is genuinely that, that you would be impacted so much by the gospel that you can't just keep it in you on Sunday mornings. Uh, we would love it. Uh, and I believe that it would be pleasing and glorifying to God if we took the message that transformed our lives and lived it outside of these four walls uh, Monday through Sunday. So we're excited that you guys are here. Uh, we are in a message series. And we started it last week. If you were here last week, um, we streamed our senior pastor, Pastor Jordan, and we had a conversation about uh, loving logic. Last week, there was a lot of theory attached to um, the next five, six weeks um, that, it's cool. <laughs> I like that, man. It's like a little, little mood lighting, y'all. <laughs> so this week is basically going to be in direct response to the message that we heard last week. So if you didn't hear the message, I would encourage you, dive into that. You can go online and just go watch it. It's about 45 minutes long, but I think it's really important. Um, loving logic, the heart of this message series is that we would be prepared to live a life that reflects Christ in a culture that doesn't. And we believe that there's some things that we have to talk about. You know, over the last couple of years, there's been a lot of things that have popped up that have, have opened up that as a church or just as people, we've had the opportunity to publicly respond to. And like, there were a lot of hills that presented themselves that people could die on. And there was this season where we just said, hold on, that's not as big of a deal as what we thought. That's not as big of a deal as we thought. We're not willing to die on this hill or that hill or this hill. But the truth is, is we've prayerfully considered this message series for truly the last two years. We've said this is a hill that we're willing to die on. This idea, this thought. So what we're doing is we are having a seven-week conversation that we've titled Loving Logic. Last week, Pastor Jordan shared this, and I think it's, it's worthy of setting our hearts and our minds up with this quote again, but he said this, he said, we're facing a dilution of the doctrine and practice of Christianity, as well as an erosion of the foundation of the reliability and authority of the Bible. This is the world that we live in right now, and we, we need to not just know about it, but we need to be prepared to, to engage in a world that this is just the reality of where we live. This isn't something new happening, but it is newer in our culture and, and for us today. But Paul faced the same thing, and he talked about it when he wrote the letter 
in Colossians, he says this. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. That's according to human tradition, uh, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So this series, we do have one big goal, and our goal is this. Our goal is to be informed as well as be equipped to hold fast to and declare biblical truth in a loving and in a logical way. These two are very important, loving and logical. How many of you know that you can say the right thing the wrong way? Oh, you guys know. I don't even have to finish it. <laughs> and you can say something in a really sweet way, but it could be the wrong thing. Our goal is to be loving and logical, but the truth is, even when you do it just right, it still might be rejected. But it doesn't change what we need to do. So last week was a big umbrella of thought, but we introduced the, the phrase or the, or the language, progressive Christianity. This has sparked lots of conversations. It's sparked a lot of interest. So what we're going to do is bring definition to this, and then I'll show how we're going to continue to provide a little clarity over the next five weeks on this, just out of curiosity. And there's not a right or wrong answer, but how many of you ever, before last week, heard the, the phrase progressive Christianity? Okay, cool. That, that was for me. That was for me. There was a, like, and there's no like, okay, now because you said that. Okay, so about half of the room. Um, inside this room, if you're under the age of 21, have you heard the phrase progressive Christianity? You raise your hand if you have. Cool. Thank you. Thank you. So here's what progressive Christianity is. Progressive Christianity, it seeks to deconstruct orthodox Christian views of the church. And it usually attacks the methodology, the ecclesiology, and the theology of the church. It's remarkably subtle but at the same time, it's remarkably loud and boisterous, and we'll get into the ways that it actually takes place. One progressive Christian, he's, one of, he's actually a TikTok theologian. The truth is his father pastors and is widely influential in the modern-day church. And uh, his son, uh, he's coined himself as an evangelical, and he's abandoned the church, and he's left faith. And he's actually a progressive uh, thought leader. That's what he is. On TikTok, he's got two million followers. So, and his aim is to attack his father's words. It's really, it's amazing what takes place. But he said this about progressive Christianity. He says, progressive Christianity isn't a set of rules, but it's a state of mind. It's an excitement about changing. And some of you are like, well, that sounds awesome. <laughs> and some of you are like, that sounds terrifying. But we have to ask ourselves, when these are some of the words or ways that it's being defined, we have to ask ourselves, what is it being changed to? If it's an excitement about changing, changing to what? A truth is progressive Christianity is, is almost impossible to actually define. And that's what makes it so hard to stand up against because it doesn't have a set of rules. Because it is just, it's all based on the way you feel. It doesn't have a specific uh, creed. It doesn't have like a dogma or a doctrine. It literally is nearly what you want it to be. And it's, if that works for you, great. And if it works for you, that's great. And we'll get into that. It views truth as subjective rather than absolute. There is no absolute truth except for that truth is subjective, which is the logic is that that's absolute truth, if that's what that is. But that's neither here nor there. But when you contrast that to the church and to um, Christianity, we see Christianity is rooted in thousands of years of faithful Christians, rightly dividing the scriptures, which is the call in the word of God to what we're supposed to do. But thousands of years of rightly dividing the scriptures to ensure faithfulness to ensure that there is a stance, to ensure that we're faithful to God's message, 
that's conveyed or relayed to us in the scripture. Like I said, progressive Christianity is, is built on truth being subjective, which we've said this before, and, and it's, it's made sense in one sense. Right now in this room, how many of you are hot? Wow, nobody's hot. Okay, just a couple of you. This is a terrible example. And okay, a couple of you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> this is, how many of you are cold? Oh, okay. So is it really just right in here? How many of you are say it's just right? Okay. <laughs> all of you are right. Seriously, all of you are right. That's subjective truth. That works on air conditioning. It doesn't work with Bible. It doesn't work with faith. If I wanted to continue the idea of this, I would simply ask somebody to read the thermostat and tell me what the temperature is, what the actual degree says it is. That would be absolute truth. doesn't matter how it makes you feel. That is the truth. This is what it is. In progressive Christianity, it, it takes ideas. It takes the Bible and it says it can mean what it's going to mean to you, to you. It demands revision of the word of God and it's, it's blatantly attempting to revise the word of God or altogether reject it. So some of us are saying, how is this actually Christianity? And I would agree with you. I don't believe that it actually is. But we're going to bring some clarity to this. There's examples, just so you know. Many of you probably haven't heard of these, but some of you have. It's in social media. It's in um, authors. It's, it's all over right now. But on social media, a, a massive following is an Instagram account called Your Favorite Heretic. And they are redefining and revising the word of God and reinterpreting what it actually means. There's podcasts called The Liturgist uh, by Michael Gunger who is redefining, reshaping, re-saying what the word of God says. And they are reinterpreting it to what they believe it to mean. But it is dividing the word of God and it's disagreeing with other parts of the word of God. Then there's authors. Some of these are... If you were here last week, you saw the example when Pastor Jordan sh uh, sang Justin Timberlake. How many of you remember when he sang Justin Timberlake? Yeah. And we did that, Taylor Swift, Bon Jovi. And then we put a picture up of another guy that nobody knew. Uh, but it was Max Martin, the author of all of those songs that we are all singing. But then there's some other people that are simply the Max Martins of the world that we live in that a lot of people don't, couldn't say this is their idea, but we're living being influenced by their ideas. It's people like Rob Bell. It's people like uh, Richard Rohr. It's people like Shane Claiborne that are simply crafting and rewording and rethinking the way the Word of God should be presented and what it actually means. And what it's doing is it's disagreeing with the Word of God. But these are all examples of progressive Christianity, Union Theological Seminary, which is birthing authors and politicians and activists. You see these things shaping the world that we live in, shaping and challenging. Progressive Christianity has already split denominations. If you've paid attention on, on a national landscape, you've seen the United Methodists split. The United Methodists is leaning progressive Christianity. There's a whole new branch of the Methodist denomination called the Global Methodist, that's a return to orthodoxy. But it's literally splitting churches. We, we are in a time of change in the body of Christ. And it's not all good. This is why, <laughs> this is why we're doing this series. And we can stand here and we can say, hey, you're sounding alarmist. And, and I, I want to acknowledge that. This can sound alarmist. And to a degree, I am. My job, our job is to alarm the church. But also, we should take great confidence. And this isn't the first time that something like this has happened. Matter of fact, this has been going on for a really long time. It hasn't always been coined or phrased progressive Christianity. 
but it's been going. This thought or this invasive approach to God's word and what God says has been around since the very beginning. Matter of fact, after Jesus ascended into heaven, you see many of the letters that were written just 30 or 40 years after Jesus' ascension being a letter of correction and warning to people that were following or attempting to follow Jesus because they were false teachers. And they were challenging what actually happened. They were saying, hold on, Jesus never actually ascended. They're like, hey, we agree with everything that Jesus did except for the ascension. And there's this idea inside of us is that, well, okay, we're just going to give a little bit, but we can't ever just give some of the attributes and characteristics of who Christ is without there being a repercussion. If we don't believe that Jesus ascended back into heaven, well, what hope is there that he's seated on the right hand of the Father interceding for us? You see, there's cause and effect to everything that we deconstruct or construct. But it goes back even further than that. It goes all the way back to the garden, y'all. It goes all the way back where there was a challenge of God's word when the serpent said, did God really say? Did he really say that? Maybe you heard it wrong. Maybe this is what he meant. This is why he said that. He's trying to control you. And the truth is, it's all the same idea. But we have to talk about it. In this series, what we're going to be doing really from this point forward until the end is we are going to be bringing a biblical critique to 10 statements that were made by one of those Max Martins, a guy named Philip Gulley, who's a progressive Christian, that wrote a book, and it was titled, If the Church Were Christian. And we will be critiquing them, challenging them. For some of us, we might be thinking, why is this important? My prayer is that by the grace of God, there will be moments where God reveals this to us, why this is actually so important. At the top of my notes... (laughs) Today it says, make Christ big. My goal isn't for you to walk out of here scared to death to live in the world. My goal is for you to realize that we serve a God that lived in this world, that that lived a perfect life, that championed life, that challenged death, that beat death, that ascended to heaven. And because of that, we can have faith and confidence that we too can live in this earth, even if it's a little bit difficult. So today... We're going to challenge a critique. Now, you're going to see this on the screen, and before you see this on the screen, here is what I'm saying. Do not take pictures of this and share it on social media because we do not agree with this statement. Like, this is the one. Don't take it and say, praise God, because this is, <laughs> this is a critique. We're going to challenge this thought. But some people call these ten things that we're going to attack the actual the ten commandments of progressive Christianity. Number one is this. The idea is Jesus is a model for living more than an object of worship. Sit there and think for just a minute. What a great spot to think. And what I'd like you to do is think, what do you agree with on that? And then think, what do you disagree? If you disagree with any of this. Jesus is a model for living more than than an object for worship. Now, we agree completely. Jesus is absolutely a model for living. If you live a life like Christ, it is going to be good for other people, but it's going to be beneficial. Jesus absolutely is a model for living. And that's what makes statements from a progressive Christian leaning so difficult is because there are elements of truth, if not A lot of it is true. But for a progressive Christian, he is just a model for living, not someone to worship, but simply someone to be inspired by. And this is difficult because different people view Jesus as different things. When I say Jesus Christ or when I say the Christ What image pops in your mind? Like when I say that, it's amazing when you Google Jesus Christ or the Christ, what pops up? One picture that pops up really quick is this one. That's a pretty traditional view. Some of you have that 
piece of art in your house or a bookmark inside your Bible. Jesus Christ. But it's amazing how quick from one thought or one person to the next person or one Google search to the next, what it can pull up the next one is this. This is some people's view of Jesus Christ. More historical. You guys ever gotten caught in those ads where they start to show what they really look like? The very next search shows this. This is what Jesus looked like. Is Jesus just your buddy? See, buddy Christ. The very next image, people view Jesus as this. Is that Obi-Wan Kenobi? It's funny, actually. I follow a social media page. You can follow it if you want, but it's called, um, what is it, uh, Crazy Christian Ant? I think that's what it's called, Crazy Christian Ant. And... What is it? Shares things like this. And it says, share if you believe. You guys seen like chain letter on social media? And like share this if you believe in Jesus. And people share this thing like crazy because this is Jesus to some people. Believe it or not, this is Jesus to some people. Progressive Christians think about Jesus differently than Orthodox Christians do. And a massive differentiation between the way that Orthodox traditional Christianity views Jesus and what a progressive Christian does is they think of Jesus and Christ as two separate things. Jesus and Christ as two separate things the idea is that Jesus is a moral man, not a God, not God. Low view of Jesus. He was a good man. He did good things. They'll even, a lot of times, go the sinless route, but they reject the idea that he is God. Matter of fact, you see a massive leaning in the progressive Christianity world right now, and it's this idea that Christ is a cosmic reality. Some of you are like, what does that mean? Why are we talking about this in church? It's this idea that a reality, this Christ that's cosmic, exists in the universe. One of those thought leaders, Richard Rohr, wrote a book called The Universal, the Universal Christ. And in that, he defines Christ, not Jesus, he defines Christ as a cosmic reality that's found, and this is his quote, whenever the material and the divine coexist. And he says, which, by the way, is always and everywhere. It's at all places at all times. He says in the universe, he says this, he says, the universe is the body of God. And right there in the book, he says, the second person of the Trinity in material form, the universe. He says this, this is the cosmic Christ who always was, who became incarnate in time, and who is still being revealed. We would have helped history and individuals so much more if we had spent our time revealing how Christ is everywhere instead of proving that Jesus was God. But big ideas take time to settle in. Richard Rohr. And what happens is they're taking from the scripture in Colossians 3, 11 that says, but Christ is all and in all. But they're misinterpreting this, and you see it through the way that it plays out. Rohr interprets this as Christ is in everything and is everything, literally in the universe, in the trees. Christ is in there. And some of you are like, well, I, I kind of believe that. And when you find yourself saying, well, I kind of believe that, what I'm saying is this is why we're doing this series, is because ever so subtly, we buy into empty deceit, worldly philosophies. This is actually called, it's, it's an approach to God, and it's called panentheism. 
For Christ is everything and all things and in all people. This is why in, the, uh, in one of his book dedications, Richard Rohr dedicates his book to his black lab that deceased named Venus. And in it, he said, Venus, who was Christ to me. When we say that, some of us are like, well, yeah, I don't agree with that. But what happens is the ideas, and because he's remarkably poetic, and because he says things that make you feel right, and because they agree with certain truths that we subscribe to internally that probably we have to sanctify and surrender to Christ, but because they agree with our flesh and our desires, we buy in. Colossians 3.11, the actual context of that scripture, that Christ is all and in all, it's actually speaking of those who are in Christ, who have been found in Christ, who've surrendered their life to Jesus and have been found in Christ and in the, in the sacrifice of Jesus. This is just this idea is just a, perver- a perversion of Christianity. And what you're going to see is that progressive Christianity, what they do, what this idea does is it combines bits of everything. It combines bits of Hinduism, New Age, spiritualism, um, mix in some humanism, <laughs> naturalism, and what happens is you get all sorts of concoctions. And it becomes a very pluralistic view of God. So your God can look very different than my God. But your God works for you, so that's okay. But your God looks a little bit different. My God is my buddy Christ. Well, I'm a little bit more nature so my god looks like a tree i love black labs so my christ is venus my black lab and what happens when we are called to live a life that reflects that of christ but christ looks different to everybody this is dangerous ground and what happens like we get here really quick by simply saying Jesus was a man and a model for living. Let's just not talk about the whole God side of him. The traditional Christian belief, which is what we stand on, is the belief that Jesus was fully man and is fully God. 100, 100. The scriptures, which we believe to believe absolute truth and Colossians 2 9 say this about Jesus for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily pretty clear we can leave it on the screen for a minute in him in Jesus the whole fullness of deity of God dwells bodily so at this point we have to make decisions Do we believe? Do we put our trust in that? And then by believing in that, we have to disagree with the other. That's that's the logic. (laughs) Like, okay, we want to apply logic and philosophy, then I believe those would be ground rules to apply those things. If we agree with something, then by nature we disagree with something else. William Lane Craig, who's an apologist, which doesn't mean he says sorry a lot. That means he defends the word of God often. Somebody said that one time, and like, oh, what do you do? <laughs> no, nope. we're called to give reason for our faith, and some people literally have dedicated their life to building arguments and truths and putting words around doctrinal statements and difficult things. But he said this uh, around this idea about Jesus and the importance of Jesus. When we downgrade the person of Jesus and make him not as important, it has massive ramifications. But William Lane Craig said this, the Christian religion stands or falls with the person of Jesus. 
person of Jesus Christ. Judaism could survive without Moses, Buddhism without Buddha, Islam without Muhammad, but Christianity could not survive without Christ. This is because unlike most other world religions, Christianity is belief in a person, a genuine historical individual, but at the same time a very special individual whom the church regards as not only deity, but also human. When we take away one of those two, we have destabilized our faith and we are on a sandy soil to build a faith on. So when progressive Christianity removes one leg of the person of Jesus, it is a very, very unstable way to approach and build your life on. I believe that the divinity of Christ is the hinge pin of Christianity. The divinity of Christ, that Jesus is God. Because if he's not, if Jesus is not God and he is simply a model for living, then we too can achieve perfection without need of saving. If he's simply a way of living rather than a God. And when the word of God says things like all have sinned and fallen short of God's standard. So if all of us have sinned and fallen short of God's standard, but Jesus' way of living was sinless, if I can't achieve that and I'm still in debt with this thing called sin, we are all in a terrible spot. Some say Jesus is a good guy. C.S. Lewis responds to that idea to those who foolishly say that. He says, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. So progressive Christianity didn't just come out past COVID. That's the one thing we must not say. He says, a man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis. So let's talk about it. Now that we've destabilized the thought or challenged the thought of him just being a good moral teacher or way of living, what actually makes Jesus divine? Okay, so we're going to make a bold claim, like Jesus is God. How? Prove it. Let's talk about it. What makes Jesus God? The first thing is this, a virgin birth. A virgin birth. None of us can make that claim There's only one in all of human history that can make that claim. And the word of God in Luke chapter 1 verse 35 says this. The angel answered him or her and said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The angel answered Mary and said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child will be born, will be called Holy, the Son of God. It is saying that the Holy Spirit is going to make Mary pregnant. It's not the seed of man. The virgin birth. Jesus was conceived by the Spirit of God in Mary's womb. And that's divine. No one else. None other than God. And this was something that, it didn't just happen and nobody knew it was coming. This was something that had been prophesied about for a long time about this this God-man, about a Messiah, about this virgin birth that was going to come. In Isaiah 7, it was prophesied a long time before it ever happened. In Isaiah 7, 14, it said, The virgin would give birth to a son, and he will be called Emmanuel. A virgin would give birth 
to a son, and he would be called Emmanuel, interpreted literally as God with us. Before it ever happened, it was said it will happen. It happened. If we strip away the virgin birth, with which many are attempting to do that, and they're saying it not by saying it didn't happen. They're saying it, would it really be a big deal if it didn't happen? Did, it, did God really say? No, we have to hold strong to this one. In the garden, when the serpent spoke and said, did God really say, and mankind followed the leading of the serpent rather than the leading of the Spirit of God, God put a rescue plan in place, and it was prophesied early on in Genesis And it was prophesied that this virgin that was going to give birth said this. It said that the seed of the woman, this man that was going to be born from the woman, that this seed would actually crush the head of the serpent that broke broke community with God and his people. It was prophesied long before it ever occurred. This is what makes Jesus fully man and fully God. Virgin birth is such a big deal. But virgin birth made possible Christ's true humanity without inherited sin. Which is actually the next point of the divinity of Jesus. Is that he was sinless. How many of you are sinless? There's usually one bold person that's like... (laughs) Put up the pinky. (laughs) Sin is in the blood, unless the blood is divine. Virgin birth gives opportunity and potential for Christ to be sinless, which is another thing that's under attack. What's the big deal if he slipped up and did this or that? He was sinless, not just in his conduct. That's where we always get hung up. He didn't do this or he didn't do that. He was sinless in his condition. And who he was, if we're all born in sin, our condition is sin, and then our conduct is a byproduct of that. If we were born sinless, then we have the potential for our conduct to match that. Jesus was sinless in both condition, in his blood, and in his conduct. And that was because he wasn't born of man. In Hebrews 4 it says, Who in every respect, it's talking about Jesus, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He was an example for godly living. That's why we model our life after him. Perfect ethic. We can't achieve perfection, but one has, and that's who we put our faith our faith in, in Hebrews 9, it says, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God? It's talking about us being found, saved, paid for by the blood of Christ. How much more will that perfect, sinless, without blemish offered to God purify our conscience from dead works so that we too can serve the living God. Sin has a cost. Sin has a price that has to be paid. For anyone that's sinned, they've fallen short of the standard of God. The standard of God is holiness. The standard of God is perfection. Some would say that's cruel. I tell you what's cruel is to achieve or demand a certain level that people can never achieve without giving them a way to achieve that. But his love is on full display when he offers his own son, sinless, as a scapegoat for our sin. That's the argument, or an argument, for someone that would say God isn't loving. Well, that's, that's, that's pretty darn loving. But the goat that was going to be in, in those days, the goat had to be pure, had to not have a blemish, so you don't be bringing no, no janky sheep to a uh, sacrifice. I don't want no spotted, spotted goat, one without blemish. 
And God offers his son perfect, sinless, as a scapegoat. The third one that speaks of Jesus' divinity. And this is the last one for today. But this is why Jesus is God. is because he was not just born of a virgin. He was not just sinless. But he was also the Messiah. The anointed one. That's what the scriptures say. The Messiah that was prophesied about in Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14. Everybody was in a bad spot. Everyone post-garden separated from God. But when Jesus was prophesied in Genesis 3 that talked about, you know, the son was going to crush the head of the serpent, there was hope that was birthed. Have you ever lived with hope? In the midst of trouble, in the midst of pain, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of what's going to happen, how is there ever a way that we can be saved Hope was spoken early on from God himself. He says, one day I'm going to send a Messiah. It's going to redeem. And it was passed down generation to generation. There There were sacrificial systems put into place so that our sins could be atoned. And you see all throughout the Old Testament, you see Old Testament figures being saved by faith that one day God was sending a Messiah and they lived a life believing that. And the truth is, one day God did send a Messiah as a man and as a God. And he sends him to this earth, and he lives the life that we've all talked about, the life that we know. He lives the moral man life that the progressive Christian says existed. We agree. Oh, but he wasn't just a 33 and a half year old man that came and lived a good life and died and disappeared he was a God in person form fully man fully God the one that was prophesied all throughout history and those that were so close to him they saw it Peter and John in those days Jesus was around a whole lot of people but he was around some a little bit more How many of you guys know that the people that are closest to you know you the very best? Truth is, most of you don't know me really well. Some of you have had the, I wasn't going to say pleasure, but it's probably (laughs) something else of being in meetings with me. You get to hear moments of like heart. Truth is, there's some people in here that know me really well. They know all the things. They know Micah. Peter and John would have been that with Jesus. So instead of asking people that have had secondhand information passed down and rumors and gossip mill and all those things that said who Jesus was, what do the people that were closest to this man say? In Matthew 6, I'm sorry, in John chapter 20, It says, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you, you may have life in his name. You think, why is this significant to read right now? Because this is the end of John's letter. He summarizes everything that he says. The entire letter, the entire account of Jesus He ends it by saying, he says, these are written. Everything that I just wrote was written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Christ. He is the one. He is the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life, actual life in his name. That's John, who Jesus says, this is my beloved. He had revelation of the Messiah side of God. He could have seen all the things, and he did see all the things. And that's the conclusion that he came to. And then Peter had his own conclusion. He's in a conversation 
with Jesus. He's in a conversation. And Jesus boldly asks Peter, he says, who do you say? He said, I know what everybody else is saying. I know what the crowds are saying. I know what everybody else is saying. He says, but Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter replies, he says, Jesus, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. What was the big side of him? What was the part that stood out to him? It was revelation. It said, yes, you're an incredible man. Jesus, you're the son of God. And Jesus replies to him. He says, Peter, blessed. He says, you're blessed because flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you. But my father, there's his claim right there as being the son of God. My father, who is in heaven, he's the one that's revealed this to you. Friends, if you don't believe that Jesus was God, if you don't believe that he was born of a virgin, if you don't believe that he was sinless and the Messiah, then you will not be able to believe that he is the perfect sacrifice for sin. And that's the next commandment that we're going to critique next week, the atonement. So the progressive Christian statement is that Jesus is a model for living rather than an object of worship. Our statement is this. Jesus is worthy of worship because he is God. And since he is God, we model our way of living after his. Jesus was man and Jesus is God. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. And God, I pray that the words that were shared today, God, that they would land on hearts ready to receive this. God, I pray that you would take all of the, all the words that were spoken. And God, that you would, now you would breathe them in our life. God, you're the only one that can make these things come alive. So God, I pray that you would guard the people inside this room, God, as worldly philosophies, as, as, as progressive Christian statements come into their minds or hearts or just in the schools, God, as we just exist in this world, God, I pray that messages like this and the authority of the word of God, God, would combat the lie. God, we believe that you are the perfect sacrifice for our sin. And God, I pray that you would continue to make messages and moments like this a reality to us. So God, over every person inside this room, God, I pray that you would minister to them. God, whatever the need is, God, whatever these messages stir up in their life, God, I pray that they would humbly surrender those things to your feet. God, I thank you for speaking to your church today. God, if there's any of us in this room that that haven't believed in you, that have never given our lives to you, God, because you gave your life for ours. You were the way for us to achieve true life. God, through what you did on the cross, God, I pray that we would surrender our lives in this moment to you. God, that we would give our lives to you. Pray that you would bless your church. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. You know, how I wanted to end service today is we're going to sing here in just a minute. We're going to sing Cornerstone about Jesus, Christ alone, the cornerstone. So for many of you, your response to today's message, I believe every single one of us have a response. Your response is to boldly proclaim the truth of the word of God through worship, that he is the cornerstone. So in a minute, you'll have the opportunity to worship I think for many of you, for some of you, your, your response in this moment is to just, as we worship, just stand there and read the words and like let them soak in you. Let them kind of saturate you as a person. Some of you, your response 
is to remember that next steps card we talked about at the beginning of service to, to actually take that card. Some of you just prayed that prayer that we were praying like a prayer of surrender to Christ. I want you to take that card as we sing and fill it out and just check the box that you made a decision to follow Jesus today. Whatever your decision is, I'm going to ask you to take your next steps. Would you guys go on and stand to your feet with me? You know, one more next step is that some of you need prayer. Some of you need prayer. You're walking through some things in your life or you're just... There's some things that are happening in your life that, according to the Word of God, you need your faith built up with one another. We, we, we are a church that's built with community and built by community. We don't, we don't think like groups and community is something that we have, uh, like it's an appendage, but it's literally something that makes us a church. And for some of you, your next step is to truly embrace the community. You know, oftentimes... You're put in spots where you have to make decisions. Am I going to embrace community in this moment? Or am I just going to kind of lay low and just, just hunker down and do that? You know, as a church, we walk through some good times and some not some good times. But we walk through real life together. So I wanted to invite you guys in part of our life, my family's life right now. And I'm going to ask you guys uh, to just be in prayer. For my father, uh, this last week he was diagnosed with prostate cancer, and he's a, he's a part of our church. He's a big part of our family. So in just a minute, uh, I'm going to ask you guys, for those of you that might be around him, to even just lay your hands on him. If you have a need in your life, you're walking through some things as well. What I'm going to encourage you to do is, like, if you've got some things right now, and this is who we are as a church, and you're saying, it would be really good if somebody would pray for me. Would you guys just slip your hands up around you? Like, it's, hey, no shame. There's some hands in there. If you see people in this room that have a hand up, I want some people to get around them, and we're going to pray. Like, your next step is to pray for the people with hands around them. So if you saw your neighbor with a hand up when worship starts again, I'm going to ask you guys to pray. Let me give you the next steps just so you guys know. Uh, Dad's got a couple more tests taking place this week, and that will kind of share what his next steps are uh, as him and as a family. Uh, you know, these are the moments where we get to uh, not just put into action what we believe, but we get to live it out. So the good news is that God is good, that God is faithful and just, and he loves us. He loves us a whole lot more than we love ourselves. So we've got a lot of next steps that we're going to take right here, but I'm going to ask you guys to take your next step as we sing this song. So God, I pray that you would inhabit the praises of your people. God, as we boldly declare that Christ alone is the cornerstone, the anchor of our faith, God, I pray that it would become not just a thing that we think, but a reality that we live by. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.